Good morning. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Today, we're very happy to have Mr. Ray B. Shepard, the CEO of American Red Cross, the Northern New Jersey chapter, as our in-studio guest today. Ray, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate being here, Darrell. Appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to share with us your views and insights on leadership. Happy to do that. So, tell us a little bit about your background. You have a very interesting background. Tell us how it all got started way back when. Well, I'm now working with American Red Cross, but in part of that, I was with the United States military. I was in the Air Force as a public relations officer. My last commander was uh, General Tommy Franks, and I served as his public relations officer. Wow. I guess there was a lot of things to cover during your tenure there. There was indeed. Uh, we, uh, we worked the first part of the you know, initial part of the you know, Iraq war uh, with media coverage. We were approximately 850 journalists that we took care of, along with 650 we had embedded in the, in the field. Um, we were able to make sure the American public knew exactly what was going on in the war. And where were you based when you were managing this particular function within the, uh, the Air Force? Well, in this particular function, we were in Qatar, uh, the, the city of the country. Uh, however, with working for General Franks, he was responsible for 25 different countries. So we traveled throughout the Middle East on various occasions. Wow. And how did you end up in the military? Tell us about uh, after your, your college <laughs> career. How did you, why did you decide a career in the military? Well, I'm a military brat, as they call. I've been, my father was in the military. I uh, attended Texas A&M University, where there's a very uh, active ROTC program. Uh, it was a life I was familiar with, and being the typical college student with no money, it was a great opportunity for me to be able to get funded through my college and serve the military. My initial attention was to go for only four years. However, I had such a great career, I wound up staying 29. 29. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And tell us a little bit about your time at Texas A&M. Did you play football there by chance? I was on a wrestling team, of all things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If, if I, w I wish my audience could see uh, Mr. Shepard. Uh, he is uh, muscular, big, <laughs> uh, <laughs> very good shape. And so you, what, what, what weight class did you wrestle at? Uh, 175. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what other activities did you get involved in on campus? Well, a couple of things. I participated in the Corps of Cadets as an ROTC student. Mm -hmm. I was on the wrestling team. I also worked for KMU-TV uh, as a sportscaster. I was a writer for the uh, athletic department and a freelance photographer for the local newspaper downtown. So journalism and PR really started for you in, in your college career. It fell right in line for me, and I've enjoyed mm -hmm. it since then. Yeah. You know, the, in the military, in, in, the, in, in the undergraduate ranks, I guess you got to see how leadership should work firsthand. What were some of the key lessons that you learned as a uh, cadet in the uh, university? Well, I think the first thing that I did when I was on active duty, I think, was probably when I learned the most. And that's, uh, believe it or not, I worked, learned just as much from the officers uh, from the NCOs, I should say, is that I learned from the officers. One of the key things I learned was being able to listen to folks first and be able to get a clear understanding of what their capabilities are and what their interests are and being able to do something. And how do you listen well? Uh, first of all, no distractions. Uh, in today's world, that's easy to, to, to get distracted with cell phones and, and uh, those kinds of things, but you have to really just put those things aside and take the time to listen to the person. Interesting enough, when you look at somebody and you're having a conversation, just being able to look at them and be able to keep, make eye-to-eye -eye contact with them, even if you're on the phone, people can tell if you're not listening. I mean, it's pretty uh, easy to know you're distracted. So being able to focus on the individual, then you can really establish, more importantly, what you need to be able to tell them to, to do. You know, it's very interesting that you should talk about the eyes and the focus because they say when your eyes are focused on a particular situation, it really allows you to take in the environment from which your eyes are, are right. looking upon. And listening is such a lost art. 
uh, too often times we're all we're all trying to get our soundbite in in a conversation right. without listening to what the individual on the other side has to say, and in a work environment, listening to your your coworkers is very important. Oh, absolutely essential, and particularly we found in the military that's absolutely essential to be able to listen to everyone, because uh, the environment's under always chaos. So being able to get input from different people, you have to be able to listen to that input and be able to know and understand. That way you can put the whole piece of the puzzle together and understand what really needs to be done versus isolated information that may come from just one source. What are some of the key lessons that you learned uh, in the military in regards to public relations that you have brought forth into your, your career, your professional career? Well, truth is probably the most important thing. We learned that uh, even when there's a bad situation, being able to tell the truth fast and often works very well in terms of being able to quell that situation. Uh, being honest and forthright with the, with the audience and letting them know that if you made a mistake, it's better to admit that first because it can only get worse as it goes along if they find out you weren't honest with them. You know, Ray, I haven't yet to get to really get to know you, but you really come across as someone who's very forthright, very trustworthy, and very honest, but also firm. Yes, yeah, so you have to be. You have to be. You've been very direct. I mean, I've, I've learned that from some of the leaders that I've worked with, uh, even on the NCO level, that it's very, very important that people understand that you're being very honest with them, establishing eye contact, being very direct when you speak to them, and uh, cast no doubt about what you're saying. Uh, it takes away the feeling that maybe you're being dishonest in some way. And how did you become the CEO of the American <laughs> Rare Cross, well, Northern quite, New yeah. Jersey chapter? <laughs> <laughs> quite by accident, actually. I was working with a colleague of mine uh, who I, we had some mutual friends in the military, uh, and doing some transition through the corporate world. I uh, got this opportunity to work for the Red Cross. For me, it was particularly rewarding since I had worked with them in the military on a number of occasions. I personally was uh, impacted by the military. I mean, by the Red Cross when I uh, my family had a family emergency, and I was able to through the Red Cross to get back home to see my father uh, go through surgery. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, you know, we're very familiar with the Red Cross in regards to donating blood and uh, helping out folks in serious situations with tsunamis and whatnot. But also, from what you're telling me, is that there's flights available in emergency situations where they can help you get to a loved one. Oh, absolutely. And, and one of the things I've discovered, you know, when you look in the, uh, the Red Cross particularly, there's been, they're doing so many good things for the community. Uh, you mentioned blood and disaster response. We also have, a, uh, of course, a, our work with the military and being able to make sure that we, they get family notifications in case of emergencies. If they need assistance of some kind, we're able to help them out with those things. We also do something that I found absolutely fascinating, and that's the training that we provide to the local community, both first aid, CPR, life-saving, babysitting, and for all things that was very surprised with my pet first aid. All those things that help the community, uh, you know, serve better and be uh, more involved, uh, we're able to do. Wow, pet sitting. Pet oh, first oh, aid, yeah. Pet first aid. Yeah, pet I would have never, uh, right. never thought about that. Now, in regards to babysitting, is what are the best practices in babysitting or helping babysitters to get uh, CPR trained? Well, you know, they always say that there's no manual that comes with children. Right. And so what right. we try to provide is uh, if, if someone is interested in doing a babysitting class, little few lessons about how to take care of the child, some safety things they want to consider when they have a child in a home, some things you want to prepare for, and also how do you communicate with your customers to make them comfortable and confident that you're able to take care of the child. You know, I have a 12-year-old daughter who's at that babysitter age, so yeah. now I'm going to call the chapter and get, get us signed up Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. I think yeah. it should be... It also gives us something for her as well. It'll mm -hmm. give her the confidence and comfort to know that she yes. does, if a situation does arise, she knows what to do. Wonderful, wonderful. And 
What, in your, in your words, what is the mission of the American Red Cross? Because they do a lot of great things. Our mission is to help you prepare for and respond to a disaster in, in your community. That's our primary mission. Now, that takes a lot of uh, different, uh, you know, area directions. Obviously, first and foremost, we do have a lot of lessons and training to just how to prepare, uh, how to get out of a house safely or during a fire. If you're, in fact, if another disaster were to happen and you're away from home, are, is your family trained to know where to do? Do you know where to communicate with each other, how to communicate with each other? Those kind of things in preparation we do very, very well. If a disaster actually were to occur, knowing that we will be there to help you out, provide food, shelter, and quite frankly, an emotional comfort and support to help you out, get you started back on your feet. And outside of the commercials that might air on um, the television, uh, how do you get your message out? I think word of mouth is probably the biggest one. We have approximately 1,000 volunteers in our particular chapter that takes care of northern New Jersey. Now, northern New Jersey for us is defined as the six northern uh, communities, approximately about 1,482 square miles of area that we cover with our volunteers. They, on a day-to-day basis, are responding to fires, collecting blood, uh, doing a variety of volunteer activities. We also have youth programs where they get leadership training as well. So all those things are done within the community, and we are part of the community. So in addition to doing the regular media-type things, we rely on our volunteers to be able to spread the word. A thousand volunteers. Correct, yes. How do you manage a thousand volunteers? Well, it's broken into sections. You have mm-hmm. around 200 for disaster. You have mm-hmm. a number of ones who are involved with the blood collection. We have some people help us with the administrative activities in the chapters. Uh, you'd be surprised how many people come out and help out the community when, uh, when, they, when they know they're needed. And I tell you, if those volunteers are trained well, that really helps out the community in those disasters. And so what type of qualities do you look for in volunteers? Well, two things, a willingness to serve mm-hmm. and an open mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, those two things, with, that, with those two elements, we can train you to, to help out your community. A willingness to serve and an uh-huh. open mind. The willingness to serve, I like that and I understand yeah. that. And an open mind means that they have to be open to whatever the situation might be, to be flexible. Flexibility is absolutely key uh, mm-hmm. because we don't know what, situ- what the situation is going to be. Uh, keep in mind, when we talk disaster, how do you define that? It's a, it's a house fire. It's a terrorist attack. It's, a, it's a, an airplane crashing in the Hudson. You know, all those things that we're involved with as a, as a Red Cross volunteer, uh, you just have to be recognized that there's some flexibility required. How has 9-11 affected how the Red Cross operates? Or is it that you already are at that level of being ready to provide for any type of emergency? Or has it made you look at the situation a little bit differently to say we might need this resource or that resource? Well, there's some minor things we've heard, but I think overall, I think you'll find that the, the preparation in terms of response to a 9-11 type situation that we're pretty well trained for. Now, we continue training on, on a regular basis. We work with the local office of emergency management, the local fire department, police departments, and so them, for them to identify the kinds of things they need us for and so that we can help respond as a team to be able to help out the community. So I think from, a, from the response standpoint, we're doing pretty well. As you know, during 9-11, the Red Cross had some issues with people wanting to make donations and not being able to properly allocate that those funds. I think those things have all been straightened out now, and we're able to make sure that if someone donates money or time to the Red Cross, that it's allocated properly. You know, one of the things that I try to do on a regular basis is donate blood, and I find that a lot of folks would donate more blood, but they have a misunderstanding about some of the, what they think of the perils of donating blood. How do you overcome those uh, 
those mindsets? Well, there's a process. When you go to give blood, for example, we'll sit down with you. And if you do have some apprehensions, there are, there are qualified nurses there who will sit down and talk with you and explain those things to you. I think you bring up a very good point. There is some apprehension out there about giving blood. But once you understand the process, more importantly, if you understand that what you donate, one pint of blood, will save three lives, I think that becomes much more significant to you, and you'll be probably willing to give the blood because it is a relatively safe process. And uh, those uh, blood drives are um, managed through the volunteers? Through the volunteers or primarily because they're the ones that will help you uh, sign up all the paperwork and also give you the orange juice and cookies to make sure you don't pass out after giving blood. But those kinds of things happen on a regular basis. But I enjoy the orange juice and the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> the Lord of Dudes. <laughs> That's right. And how many folks do you manage in your office outside of the volunteers? Outside of the volunteers, we have a staff of 49. But that staff of 49 is spread out over five buildings throughout the our northern New Jersey area. Uh, typically, we have different departments, our health and safety department, mm-hmm. disaster response, of course, our volunteer group, which takes care of the blood programs and those kinds of things. And so we, we divide those out, and we so we manage based on that. We have leadership underneath me that will also supervise those areas to make sure there's done. But as we were talking earlier, one of the key things is making sure we have a strategic plan, something we know we want to accomplish for our, for our year, and then make sure that everyone understands what those plans are. Now, one of the key things I find important in leaders is that I don't want just my managers to understand that information. Everyone in the organization needs to understand, ask questions, and be able to focus in on on the overall plan of what we want to accomplish. You know, this is something that I've been stressing throughout. This show started back in early September, and one of the reasons why I wanted to start this program is that I found a lot of organizations, they really lack focus because they really don't have a particular strategy. So you have all these different people within the organization going off in many different directions. What are some of the key things that you do to establish a strategy before you communicate that strategy to you? Well, first and foremost, we have to make sure that we're responding to the community. I mean, we need to identify the things that we need to do to serve the community the best way. Once we identify that, we may want to make sure we have the resources to identify the resources we need to be able to accomplish that. From there, we start to develop a plan on how we can put those resources and the requirements together to be able to accomplish the overall mission. Now, I will tell you, it's been my experience over the years that people hate planning, but planning is absolutely important. With that plan, it provides you a clear picture of what you want to accomplish, and those surprises and one-offs are less likely to occur when you've already planned for those kinds of things. And um, have, do you work within the community to help communities plan their emergency plan? We do. We, uh, we mm-hmm. work primarily with the Office of Emergency Management okay. of those organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do, on, a, on an occasional basis, work with individual communities. But primarily, we, uh, we try to work with the officials who are already doing those things. It could, because when something does happen, we're really going to fall in line with assisting them and where the requirements are. The Office of Emergency Management obviously has a primary responsibility for taking people, taking care of people in disaster. The fire department, police department, they usually fall in line with those folks as well. We do the same thing during emergencies. Now, we are, you're talking about strategy and making sure that everyone up and down the line understands what the strategy. Mm-hmm. How do you communicate that strategy? How do you, the person who is the, the receptionist, how do you get that person to be in line with the strategy? Well, first and foremost, you, uh, we, uh, it's a published plan, so they get a chance to read it. But then you want to go ahead and give them the opportunity to ask questions. And typically what I try to do is try to hold on a regular basis of meetings, uh, sort of staff meetings, I guess what we would call them, or quarterly meetings where to evaluate. And then where we, we take a look at the what we've accomplished, and then we l- align that with our strategic plan and say, are we still online with what we need to do? Now, 
And any time, plans are just that, a plan. Uh, things can happen. Things can change. By having that constant communications with your staff and your leadership, you can see and make those adjustments to what you need to do for your overall plan. So I would think if there's anything you have to do, it's essential that you communicate to the people who have to accomplish the mission what they need to do. And do you find that um, your team members are very vocal in a positive and constructive way in regards to saying, Ray, you know what, we have this particular uh, tactic that we're using, but we should do this. Do you find it it's bubbling up from the uh, from the ranks? I do, and I think it, uh, the, the, one of the things that's uh, very important is if, if you're constantly communicating with them, they feel much more comfortable about communicating with you. Again, back to when we first started, listening becomes a very key part component of that. When they have something they'd like to talk to you about, if they understand that you're going to listen to what they have to say and respond accordingly, they will be more likely to want to give you information and input to things. Because one of the things you've got to keep in mind is that leaders, we rarely get a chance to see the overall operation on a day-to-day basis. The guy on the, you know, down at the bottom of the rung, so to speak, probably has more information about what's really happening. So it's in our, to our advantage as leaders to listen to what they have to say to know what's going on. If I can, well, yes, please, yeah, please. If I can digress, mm-hmm. I'll give you an example, uh, just mm-hmm. as a way of God explaining that. Uh, my during my time period in the military, I used to travel on an inspection team where we'd go to visit. Well, my particular boss would always go visit the battery shop. Now, if you can imagine a, a military installation with all kinds of operations of equipment and everywhere, the battery shop was typically run by a 21, 22 year old young man who took care of all that the batteries. Now. If he didn't function properly and didn't understand the mission, no matter how many millions of dollars of equipment was there, they weren't going very far. They weren't far. going very far. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And uh, when, when you think about uh, the folks who are at all the various different levels, um, what type of uh, program or meeting infrastructure do you put in place where they can have a, uh, the capability of communicating to, to you and your, and, your, and your managers? Well, first and foremost, it goes to an open-door open policy, which is used quite often. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I think that's important. They understand. But it all comes back to the end of the same thing. They understand that they can uh, either email me in these days. They can come by and talk to me. The regular structured meetings, obviously their supervisors are in, in line with that as well. And so I think an open communications policy becomes very, very effective. Now, in today's world, that can be complicated as well, but I think it's just one of those things that leaders have to recognize, despite all the distractions that you may have on a day-to-day basis, having that ability to still listen and communicate with your, with your staff and your employees is, is absolutely essential, and you just have to take that time to do that. You know, speaking about today and today's technology, um, you have a lot of, uh, of the younger people who don't have a wired phone in their home. Right. They, have, they have their cell phone. Um, they don't even watch TV. They have right. their, their, their computer. Oh, yeah. um, when it comes to managing a particular serious situation, you want to get the message out, um, how do you deal with those, those new barriers where they, they have a cell phone, they don't have a, a landline phone, right. they're not watching TV to you know, get that special noise on the TV where you know you have to pay attention or, right. or to a radio? Um, well, we embrace the technology. I mean, we have Twitter accounts for our disaster response folks, for example. Uh, We also are on Facebook. Uh, We have what we call an all-call system, which buzzes on my cell phone or all the cell phones of people who are on on disaster response. We use the technology that they use. 
being able to identify how people receive information, make sure we respond in kind and, and give it that way. So do you work with the, uh, the cell phone companies, whereas if there was an emergency in a very particular area, you could send a message out to everyone's cell phone in that area? Well, not for our volunteers. Our volunteers. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I think the Office of Emergency Management has systems like that okay. in place for the mm-hmm. local population. But for our volunteers, we have a system in line for the people who need to respond. We try to not, you know, we try to make sure that it's focused on the people who need to respond. I would hate to send it out to everybody in a sort of a false alarm, because I will tell you, many of our emergencies are in two or three o'clock in the morning, and I think the people who aren't involved would probably not be very receptive to that. <laughs> right, right, right. But I guess I was thinking about the the people who, if there was a particular emergency in a in a given zip code, and you wanted to get the message out to everyone. I guess that the Office of Emergency Yeah, Office of Emergency Management would probably would take care that. of that, right. And we would we would be one of the recipients of that information, and we would respond in kind. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful. And um, do you have any children volunteers? Uh, I do. As a matter of fact, uh, geez, we have uh, 15 schools throughout uh, northern New Jersey we're involved with. It's Seton Hall being one of those, okay. by the way, where we have a Red mm-hmm. Cross Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, those folks get involved with not only uh, disaster preparedness training, but also training our, our, uh, our younger folks on how to uh, respond to emergencies, fire safety, uh, first mm-hmm. aid, CPR. Mm-hmm. And interesting enough, we have a program called Scrubby Bear, which is Scrubby very— Scrubby Bear. Right, let's talk about is, Scrubby Bear. Yeah, which is very uh, you know, apropos for this time period because it's, uh, it's a program that our youth volunteers take on to teach the younger folks uh, just general hygiene making mm-hmm. sure they're washing their hands properly and knowing exactly how to how to take care of themselves from a personal hygiene standpoint. Wonderful. Yeah, that program's been around for quite a while, and it's very, very effective for us. Has it been in the South Orange Middle School yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to ask our volunteers if they'd like to go there. Absolutely. I would love to introduce them to the principal there. <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's so important that folks take the time to do uh, use good hygiene. It is, it is. And also, I think awareness is probably the biggest thing. And I think once we've found that once we conduct that program, uh, and it's, it's one of the things where we usually chain the, uh, train the teachers or our youth volunteers that go in the program because they're the ones who have constant contact and have established the credibility with the, with the students. And so them being able to tell them how to properly take care of themselves has much more credibility than a stranger walking in the door saying this is what you need to do. So once we train them how to do that, I think that we find it's very, very popular. More importantly, it's very, very effective uh, as we've found from the, from the student standpoint. Now, is there a mascot scrubby bear? I could have just imagined. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we do have a couple of illustration books and stuff like that to go along with it. But that's an interesting point. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a good friend of mine. He's a children's book author, uh, Mark Hogue, and uh, He's uh, out in Colorado, and I think when I saw when I when you said Scrubby Bear, made me think of him because he's very colorful characters (laughs) and whatnot. And um, do do you find that you get children in the grade schools to be involved as volunteers? We do. As a matter of fact, our volunteer group, as I mentioned, we have like fifteen different schools involved, uh, Mm -hmm. mostly in the. uh, It starts at age uh, in high school primarily. Oh, in high school, okay, Mm -hmm. and then goes up to age twenty-three is what we usually have. And there, we have a pretty good program, and uh, they. They get an opportunity, more importantly, just to just learn more about the Red Cross and community service. If you look at it from the standpoint of they're learning this stuff early. Uh, and so community service, we hope, uh, with a good experience through the Red Cross, will go throughout their entire life, lifetime. Uh, in fact, we have a simple gentleman I've met since I've been in this job who were youth volunteers and are now still volunteering with the chapters as as part of community service. Oh, that is yeah. fantastic. When I was at Seton Hall, I was a community advisor in a dormitory, and of course we had to take the American Red Cross CPR okay, good. Uh, exam. So um, that was that was very helpful. 
Very helpful. And a lot of people need to understand that, you know, I guess it needs to be taken about once every two or once three a years. Year. Oh, once a year? Yeah, once mm-hmm. a year. We found in studies, particularly at the, at the uh, most people, uh, that after about a year, you kind of lose your skills. Uh, and so it's helped to, to, to sort of revive those once a year. There have been other organizations that do it, stretch it out to two years. Uh, you know, I think the jury's still out of just how effective that is. But we right. find to be on the safe side, it's much more comfortable to you to take it every year. A couple of reasons for that. Not just the physical skills, but it's the comfort factor that comes from having like, just reminded yourself on how to do these properly. Right. More yeah. practice. More comfort. More comfort. Correct. That's right. right. Is ABC still the, the, the technique? Uh, airway, Actually, uh, breathing, it is, it's still circulation? A technique, yep. Although, okay. I will tell you, those are changing every now and then. But that's still right now, as it stands right now, there, right. it is still an activity. I, I think yeah. I need to. Uh, it's time for me to sign back up. <laughs> there you go. My wife, she just uh, finished her uh, certification to be a physical fitness trainer, and they had to oh. take uh, CPR exams. So. Well, in fact, uh, all the uh, coaches now in New Jersey also have to take the exam uh, as part of the uh, – they're part of taking care of the kids. Yeah. Well, you know what? I am. I coach my daughter's softball team, oh. so I'm sure we're going to need to contact the American Red Cross to uh, to get that set up because yeah. we didn't take CPR the last couple of years. Well, so. you should. I mean, that's yeah. really a good thing. It's. Uh, it's. Uh, I think it's a much more comfort factor for the uh, for the parents as well to know that if there is an emergency, that you're there to be able to tell, uh, help out. Particularly, look at CPR. They find that. It's in those first few critical minutes for you to be able to administer CPR gives the uh, the emergency team a, an opportunity to get there and help out. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. What has been one of the most challenging situations that you have faced as being the CEO of the American Red Cross? I think the most challenging thing it's been for me is just getting the community to understand exactly what we do. We do such a, a broad array of things in the community that typically we're when we walk in the door we're only identified with one of those. And so getting the community to understand exactly what we do and how they can help uh, is, has been the biggest challenge. And uh, what are your plans to overcome that challenge? Um, what, what do you foresee? What have you done in the past and what are you going to be doing in the future? Well, I've employed all my communication skills to be able to do that. I think, uh, again, relying on our volunteers to spread the word through the community. Uh, we have a number of speaker programs where people can go out and talk to a variety of groups about what we do. We take advantage of the media whenever that's an opportunity arises for those. So I think uh, we just have a very pretty uh, robust communications program to get the word out as much as we can. And, of course, coming on our program here. Doesn't hurt. Talking about absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And how would you describe your leadership style? Uh, I would – that's an interesting question. I would probably describe it as uh, probably laissez-faire, although with a touch of of strictness here and there and there. First and foremost, I think is absolutely essential, as I've said before, is to, for people to understand what's going on. In order for them to understand, you have to communicate with them on a regular basis. I, uh, I take the Jack Welch approach. I get out from my desk and I go down to their area and then find out what's going on. I don't want to come down. I have to always come to me. I'll go to them so you can see what's going on on a day-to-day basis. You can understand what their environments and, and the challenges that they have. Uh, it's good to observe. Uh, to see what's going on. Yeah, I think you have a better understanding. And then when you're making leadership decisions, you can then take into uh, consideration the challenges that you're asking the individual to take on as well. And how do you keep your leadership blade sharp? How do you, how do you be, remain to be a student of the game to make sure that you're yeah. doing the best, being the best leader that you can be? Well, you can never learn enough. School is always important. I try to read as much as I can about leadership. I talk to a lot of other leaders I uh, take advantage of as many seminars as I can. If I run into someone I've met on, you know, on a 
particular event or something like that that's got a, a unique style or unique challenges that they're going with, I'll take the advantage to take time to talk with them and be able to understand. Uh, just continue to absorb information and to see the other styles, I think, has been very helpful. I was very fortunate by the fact that I was in the military for so long and I was able to work with some very tremendous leaders. Uh, and each of them had a different style of way to be dealing with the troops and dealing with different problems to be able to see how those styles work and to just to understand the reasoning behind it. Because as you well know, once the decision is made, there's a thousand things that were in there and they had to consider before that final decision is made. Just to be able to watch that process, I thought, was very invaluable to me as a, as a leader. Wow, this has been very good. Ray, we are out of time for this segment, but you're going to come back next week, correct? Yes, absolutely. I would like to thank Ray Shepard. He's the CEO of the American Red Cross Northern New Jersey chapter. And I urge you, please go to their website, which is AmericanRedCross.com. Dot com. No, no, I'm sorry. RedCrossNNJ.org for us. Okay, RedCrossNNJ.org. And uh, please volunteer in your community because the life that you can save will be your own and maybe one of your neighbors or your loved ones. So uh, we want to thank you for your time today, no, and we look you. forward to continuing this discussion. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM, streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Have a great week, and remember, leadership begins with you.